You're listening to Living Faith, the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Avon Park, Florida. First Baptist Church is located at 100 North Lake Avenue in Avon Park, Florida. We meet Sunday morning at 9.30 a.m. for Sunday school and 10.45 a.m. for morning worship. Sunday evening services are at 6 p.m. On Wednesday, we meet at 6 p.m. for our weekly Bible study along with our immersive student and children's ministries. Find out more at www.fbcap.net or give us a call at 863-453-6681. You can email us at info at fbcap.net. We'd love to connect with you soon. This is part of our current Sunday evening sermon series. Find the book of Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. Before, well, let me, let me do something else. Look at Matthew 10. We'll start at Matthew. We'll work our way to Revelation 3. How about that? Before we get started on, um, and I don't know all the details, but some evidently this after this morning at church, there was a gunman that walked into a church in Texas and opened fire and Best we can tell, 20 or so were shot and killed, and it's a small rural church with about 50, and that's all we know. As I was coming in today, this afternoon, that was they apprehended the gentleman that did it. We don't know motive behind it, just that somebody had walked into a church. And so often as a pastor, it's just, what do we do? You know, what do we do? What, what, what is the answer for that? And um, I don't have an answer other than, this side of heaven, we're on the mission field, and um, Christ came to give life uh, to for those, you know, to seeking to save, give abundant life. But until He returns, we live in a fallen world where there there are sinful people, and there's going to be evil. Um, there are going to be things that take place. There, there, we can go through seasons of revival and seasons of of goodness, and then. You know, depending on even geographically where we are in parts of the world, there's intense persecution in one area and little in others. But basically, we live in a world that has fallen in, in the seriousness of sin and depravity. And so I know Matthew 10 is, is talking about the sending of the apostles, but I think there's, there's much that we can learn about our life as believers. He's sending the apostles out. In his name. He said, okay, apostles, you're going out in my name. Um, and, and this is what you, you need to expect. Look at verse 16. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents. And that's, that's always, this, is, this verse has always kind of been my theme when it comes to living and doing this side of heaven in regards to this type of stuff. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And wolves were always reported to false teaching and and those that attack the gospel. I'm sending you out as sheep into wolves. So be as serpent, wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And that's always kind of been my, my take on things. Uh, I don't normally, as your pastor, you've probably noticed, I don't get all wound up and, you know, run for the hills. The end is coming because I look at life this side of heaven. We're, we're not living for this side of heaven, so to speak, as far as, I think one of the dangers that we have, and I don't want to take much time here. I'll get sidetracked. Some of us are guilty of, of wanting America 
to be a Christian nation to where we're just good Christian people and nothing ever bad happens and we pray in schools and we do good things and everything's great and none of this evil happens. Well, that's great, but that is nowhere in Scripture what the church is supposed to be. And I know that sounds kind of harsh. Like, what is he saying? But if we're not careful, that's so, so we compare everything to that. Oh, my goodness, what's happening? How does this happen? Oh, we need, to, we need to get back to where we were. We need to, and, it, and I think we're just looking at it lot, we're looking at it wrong. Our goal is not for our country to be a wonderful, godly Christian nation where no evil takes place and all the presidents are Christian and all the congressmen are Christian and all the politicians are Christian and everything's just Christian and we zippy doo die zippy day this side of heaven, my, oh, my, what a wonderful day. Even though that would be great. Take the church of Acts. That's what our life should be like. We are on a mission field. Yes, I wish that all of my neighbors loved Jesus, and most of them do. I didn't mean to talk about my neighbors so directly. Uh, I wish all my neighbors loved Jesus and everybody on my street, but that's just not the reality of where we are in our world today. And that's why we keep our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do I pray that our president and congress and politicians and everybody would love jesus yes do i pray that people can be wise follow jesus christ yes but that's never going to happen completely in a sense of totality because of just the evil in the world that we live in and so as you read matthew chapter 10 jesus said listen you're going out into the wolves you need to be as wise as a serpent as gentle as a dove they're going to come after you. They're going to do this. They're going to do that. And when they deliver you over, do not be anxious or how you will speak or what you will say. For what you say will be given you in that hour. And so as you read that, you get an understanding. As he sent the apostles out, it's a great mandate for us to, to understand. We just need to go out there and be as wise as a serpent and as gentle as a dove. I see some people that are really fired up about living out the Christian life and what's right and wrong, but I don't see the gentleness of a dove and the loving of a dove. We do live in a terrible place, and I have no words to describe the things that we have to endure, but we have to know that the Lord is with us and that he has given us the hope of the gospel. And so as hard as it is, every time I hear of something that happens, and you know, I pray for that individual. If he hasn't already passed, I pray, Lord, you know, pray for his soul. I pray for his family. I pray for all things that, that take place in that. So that was Matthew 10. You read Matthew 10. Uh, and that's what encourages me as I live in the midst of all of these things uh, that, that take place. We should pray. I want to I reiterate, we should pray for revival. We should break, pray for God to do a supernatural work in our midst and that people would be saved. But I think if we're not careful... We think that our society should be perfect and know that, and that's never going to happen. And so we just have to understand that and trust in the goodness and the greatness of the Lord. Now, Revelation chapter 3. So that wasn't bad from Matthew, the Revelation, pretty quick. Complacency. The sin of complacency. It's a serious academic epidemic in our lives, in our churches. We have in Revelation chapter 3 a letter to the church at Laodicea. 
And to the angel in the church of Laodicea, Revelation 3, 14, the words of the amen and the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I'm not going to exegete all the verses because that would take too long, but I just want to hit on the main thing I want us to talk about. I know your works are neither cold nor hot. There were two cities outside of Laodicea, Hierapolis and Colossae. One had hot springs, one had cool water. And Laodicea was just kind of in the middle. It almost like it, the two waters kind of merged there. Here's a great example. How many of you ever like hot coffee? How many of you ever like iced coffee? How many of you like hot coffee that's gotten cold or iced coffee that's gotten hot? Blah. That's exactly what this is. It says that you're neither hot nor cold. I will spit you out of my mouth. And then it goes on to talk about different things that the Lord is referring to in that church. It's a great example of what I would say. Well, let me go and read. I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold. Would they either be hot or cold? So because you're lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That is complacency. It's like neither or, just blah. And the Lord Jesus Christ says, I'll just soon spit you out of my mouth. You're no good to anything. Now let's think about the word complacency. If you look it up in an English dictionary, it means, uh, I got this out of Webster. Self-satisfaction, especially when accompanied by unawareness. This is really a great definition. Self-satisfaction, especially when accompanied by unawareness of actual dangers or deficiencies. That is a superb definition of complacency. There's a self-satisfaction that comes alongside. You're unaware of actual things that are going on. And you're unaware of the deficiencies that are involved in that. Complacency. Now think about the Christian life. And you, let's, let's look at that definition. We're content where we are. I'm a Christian. We're good Baptist people. And good Baptist people believe once what, always what. Boy, isn't that convenient if you want to be complacent? I'm saved. Once saved, always saved. I'm content where we are. One of the sermons you ever, you have those sermons you've heard in your life. You don't really remember the, the details of them. You just remember the big picture of them. We, can all, we all have them. And it's funny because I've gone to preachers that have preached such sermons and said, you know, you remember that sermon? They go, I don't even remember preaching it. One of those sermons was at ease in Zion and Amos. It's talking about believers that are just content where they are. Unaware. Clueless. In regards to our walk with Christ. So think about complacency as a Christian. I'm satisfied, but I'm unaware. It's like I'm absolutely clueless where I could be for the Lord. You know, I'm not either hot or cold. I'm just, I'm just kind of lukewarm and I'm complacent. And I'm, I'm just even unaware of what it could be that I could experience as I walk closely with the Lord. And, and what a close relationship with Christ would really look like. And from a 
bad standpoint, taking that English definition of an English word, we're completely unaware of the dangers of what it means to become a complacent Christian. That we're just indifferent and unaware and just satisfied with where we are. So here are my thoughts on this word as we dig into it and look at some of the things and we look at some more scripture. Here are my thoughts. A complacent Christian is somebody that's not doing what they've been asked to do with what has been given with them to do it. Okay? Think about that. If someone is born again and they've been born again and, and, and that, that person is sitting right here, Lord Jesus Christ has given them a new life. And he has called them. Remember we looked at what is the, the, the big thing about our calling? To glorify and to love him, serve the Lord, love God, love others, to glorify, live a life that glorifies God as we go and make disciples. So if we are a believer, God is saying, love me. Love the things about me. Tell others about me. Go and, and live a life that glorifies me and go and make disciples. That's your calling. That's it. And so someone is complacent is, is they're not fulfilling what God is calling them to do. Here's the second part of that. With what has been given for them to do it. Now think about this. How many, think about standing before the Lord. All of us are going to stand before the Lord one day. As a Christian, we're going to stand before the Lord. We may not face the eternal punishment of being an unbeliever because our name is written in the Lamb's book of life. But you think about this. We're going to stand before the Lord and he's going to say, but look what all I gave you. John, you were literally empowered with the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that was in all the disciples that literally turned the world upside down. The same Holy Spirit that was in these great missionaries that we read about and the great Holy Spirit that was in these great people of the faith that we look at. That same Spirit was within you. And you had the Spirit of God. John, you've got the Word of God. You've got the, the people of God, the church of God. You've got, John, you've got everything you need to live a life of, of zeal and excitement to the Lord. And what did you do with it? We're going to give an account of that. And there will be a lot of people, I don't know what they're going to say. I don't know if they're believers or not. I, I don't know what they're going to say. That I don't know. I just was Luke. I don't know. Now, the lukewarm person in Revelation is not a converted person, by the way. Complacency. Not doing, this is my thoughts, not doing what God has called you to do with what he's given you to do it with. Now, I, I don't know if you picked up on George. You notice I was standing over here when I was singing. I had my own little choir. Choral people. Not that y'all don't sound good, but I mean, <clears throat> the, the choral. And I had my, my own little choir. And one of the benefits of uh, the Lord's Supper, you notice when we do the communion at the invitation, I'll stand in front of choir people. They sing the right. They, I like to hear the melodies go on with the men and they sing. You know, why, why is that a big deal to me? I love to sing, but I don't sing like that. And so when I stand before the Lord, he's not going to say, you were called to be the next great singer. That's never going to come out of the Lord's mouth. 
He's going to say something like, you know what? You didn't think you sound pretty good, but when you were singing unto the Lord every day at church, you were singing to me. Thank you for that, John. I'm saying, you betcha. That's why joy puts me on the front. I don't throw everybody else off. (laughs) But we're going to be standing before the Lord with what he has called us to do and gifted us to do. And if we're not willing to do that, then we're, we're complacent. John's thoughts number two. The middle of complacency. Another way to say that, the majority of the middle. The thing about the majority of any type of leadership or structure, the majority is that middle. The complacency. There'll be a a small group that is really committed and really gets it. There'll be another group that they don't get it and they'll tell you they don't get it. Be like Jesus was saying, hey, the hot's over here. They tell me they don't. They're like the, they've told me they don't believe who I am. Then there's some over here that says, Jesus, we love you. We know you. We're following you. It's the ones that are in the middle I have no clue about. And so it's the idea that what 80% of people do, 20% of the world. You know, every organization, if you ever had a, a workplace or where you work or what you do, don't start calling names out. There's a majority of the middle that you don't, it's just complacency. Can I tell you that that's an epidemic in all churches? There's a vast middle. And as pastors and as Sunday school teachers and leaders, we really don't have a clue. We're going to eventually get some more scripture, but I want us to think about this. What are the reasons for this complacency within the church? I can't speak for other things, but I do believe I can speak for the church. And I've pastored in three states. Yes, three states. And all you have to do is change the name of the church and the names of the people. And there's a lot of similarities everywhere I've ever pastored. That was one of the first things that a pastor told me one time. That first church you pastor, you're going to think, if I can ever get out of this first church, the second church is going to be perfect. And this pastor took me by the side. He said, the only difference between church one and all the other churches is their names and faces are different. That is true. There's been a Kim in every church I've pastored. (laughs) See, Kim Kim took that as a good thing. It It was meant to be a good thing. And there was always a Nicole with a Kim in every church I've ever pastored. Amen. Every church I've ever pastored, there has been a sense of this complacency. And as a pastor, as you look into it, it's heartbreaking because you could see, hey, if we're going in churches on a Sunday morning at 11 o'clock, and I don't know any details, I'm not making light of it, if we're going into churches on a Monday morning at 11 o'clock in a small town outside of San Antonio, and we're firing into a congregation, we're living on a mission field. If we don't think we need to be out there living out the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're not complacent, you're dead. If you think about it, if if that's taking place in our country, we better realize, listen, we don't need to fly to Africa to do missions. We just need to walk out the front door to do missions. And so I think in every church and every, every family, go to a family reunion, every family, every church, I see this. Here are excuses that I see for complacency. Now, complacency is someone that is satisfied where they are 
They're unaware of the dangers. They're not seeking the face of the Lord. They're not growing in the Lord. They don't have zeal for the Lord. They're just there. Number one, been there, done that. You'd be surprised how often that is. My first pastorate, the first January of my first pastorate, we're going to read through the Bible as a church. I'm going to post the scripture in the bulletin, and we're going to read the Bible through. And every Sunday, I'm going to pick one of the verses for that week, and that's going to be our scripture reading. And we're going to read through the entire Bible as a church, January 1. Chairman of Deacons, why? I'm not doing that. She was the treasurer. That's not to accuse all treasures of this, but she dealt with the money. I'm just not doing that. Why? I've done it before. I was so wise at my young age. You know what I said to her? Well, God help you if you read the Bible again. I don't know why she didn't like me. (laughs) I've read the Bible through in a year. I'm not doing that again. Been there, done that. Think of that mentality. I've read the Bible. I've gone to discipleship. I've been revivals. I've done this training. I've done this and that. You know, I'm just, I'm a believer. I'm just going to go to church and do what I need to do. And just me and the Lord, been there, done that. There's also a been there, done that element of, I've been there, done that. I've arrived. You know, one of the dangers of an older, mature, an aged Christian, I've arrived. Now, I'm a little older now. 51. I'm still not halfway to some of y'all. You didn't pick up on that, did you? Halfway, I'm 51. But when I was in my 20s, you know what the biggest struggles I had? Who is he to tell me what I need to be doing? Young man, I'll tell you right now, you're, you're our, we pay you to preach. But you're not my pastor. You're not, you're not my, my elder bishop leader. You're just a, a young man that we pay you to because I've been around a little bit longer than you have, and I've arrived. But let me just say this. If I think I have arrived where I'm at, it's not a good place to be. None of us, here's a great way to understand if you, let me tell you, when, you are, when do you think you've arrived? You get one answer, and if it is real wrong, I'm going to say, no, that was not good. When have you arrived, Miss Gail? When the Lord, think about it this way. Hebrews says it's appointed once to death and then the judgment. There has been some wonderful people in my eyes the Lord called home too early. He didn't call them home too early. He brought them home just the right time. That's a good way to think of that. There's been some faithful saints that have lived a long time and he calls them home. When you've arrived, you've you've arrived. We've, we never arrive, we almost could look at it this way. Some of us are hanging around here because we got a lot more work to do, right? I won't say that to you, but, you know, when we arrive, you be, I'm not doing that. I've already been to enough Bible study. I've been to do all this, pride, self-assurance. I don't need to grow. You know what I would say to that person if I was in a setting that I could say this? I would question their salvation. I'm getting bolder in my old age in a sweet way. I think you can be angry and people don't listen to you. But I'll tell you a good example. Ma'am, 
Write that down. I can tell you a good example. I put my arm around a young man, and we were talking about his life and his habits and his desires. And I said something along these lines. If that is what you do, and you say that you love Jesus Christ and you're following Jesus Christ, I would question whether or not you truly have met Jesus Christ. What I mean by being more bold is to look at somebody and say, if what you do and what you say and the way you act is truly what you believe, I'd love to introduce Jesus Christ to you. Because a person that is living that way cannot know the Savior that I read about in Scripture. A complacency that been there, done that. Secondly, just lazy. Anybody struggle with that? Just motivated to get things done? You'd be surprised the number of people that struggle with just complacently. They just cannot get going. You know, pastor, I try, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, I just... I don't know, I just can't get excited. I'm like, listen, what more, do, how, what more do we need to get excited about than living for the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, I know this is going to sound funny because I'm the preacher. I cannot think of a better place I would want to be than a healthy, biblical church. You like the way I added that? Because I have been in some that are not healthy and biblical, and I just assume been sitting out in the car reading the Bible and singing on my own. But I really cannot think of a better place to be than in a, a healthy, growing, dynamic church that I love people and they love me. I don't need any more motivation than just, hey, God's there. You know? What more? If it's healthy, a biblical church, the Lord's going to be there. And so there's a lot of complacency just because we're lazy. I think, I think some of it can creep into been there, done that. And our spiritual life becomes kind of da 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 We just do the same thing all the time. Living and following for Jesus Christ should not be the same thing. It's like any relationship. Think about any relationship this side of heaven. And I always use this as an example. You know, when you're raising children and you've got little babies, you're just thinking, oh, my goodness, if, you know, if, I, if I can get through this phase in life. You know, I remember praying this, Lord Jesus, please, I know you're busy. I always start with my silly prayers. They're not silly because he hears them. Lord, I know you're busy. It would be a big help if Brantley could get out of the baby bed by himself and eat a Pop-Tart. I know you got a lot going on in heaven today. Then guess what happened? Lord God, I know you're busy. Could you put him back in the bed now? I know he's in middle school, but I really wish he was back in diapers in the baby bed. Lord, I, Lord, I know they're in their 20s. Could you make them 10 again? And see, all relationships, they never stay the same. The dynamics of any earthly relationship never stay. It's always that dynamic of growing and changing and, and the, the joy and the excitement in different ways. And so we think about our relationship with the Lord, it, it, it's, you know, a, a lazy thing. How about this? Number three, this hits all of us too. I'm just tired. I got too many irons in the fire. Ouch. I feel like I'm complacent because I'm running around doing so many other things, I can't do what I want to do. That's hard. That's a tough call. 
I struggle with that as a pastor. Do you believe that? I run around doing things that are real busy and I just get pulled in so many different directions. I feel like that the, the one thing that always seems to get pulled away from if I'm not careful, they can be good things, but is it the best thing? My relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is the most important thing. Loving Him, serving Him. Too many irons in the fire. I really want to, but I just don't have the time. Remember, your calling, your purpose, and your priorities. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. That which we're going to have to stand up for. What did God call you to do? You know, I struggle. Oh, I struggle with this. What is God calling me to do? What is he calling me to do? Seminary professor at Golden Gate Seminary in San Francisco, he made this comment a couple years ago, and I heard him say, when you think of San Francisco, what is one of the things you think about? Somebody say it. The bridge. Yeah, Let's just go with that. Relationships. Let's just go there. It kind of set the tone back in the day. So here he is, the Southern Baptist president of the Southern Baptist Seminary in San Francisco. And everybody was coming to him. Hey, we're glad you got a, we're glad you're the seminary and we want you to come on board. And we're fighting the good fight of what God's view of marriage is. And we want you to be on this, you know, blah, blah, blah council. And he goes, listen, I'm all for that. Y'all have at it. God hadn't called me to do that. And he said, it would, you could hear, you know, and I've done this before. Sometimes you say something and you just hear crickets. He said, every time I'd say that, I'd just hear crickets. Nobody would say a word. He goes, what do you mean you don't want to be involved with that? He said, God has called me to be a professor at a seminary. A seminary equips the men and women that are called to serve the Lord Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. While standing for biblical marriage is important, if that takes away from what God is calling me to do, I do not have time to do it. That was, a, that was one of those things that I was listening to, and I was like, oh, my goodness. Brother John, we are with the free the orphanage out of bondage ministry in Uganda. Would you be willing? No, I cannot do that. What do you mean you don't want to do that? God has called me to be a pastor of a local church in Avon Park, Florida, and my ministry is here in this church and what we're doing here. Okay. Brother John, we are with a new ministry. We're starting up, blah, blah, blah. I cannot do that. Why? Because God has called me to be a pastor of a local church. And, and I tell them sometimes, if you could see these folks, you'd understand why I'm saying that. <laughs> you know, I heard a, one of our uh, a deacon story. He was standing outside the church in a, pre, uh, the previous church. And like the way we say that, in a previous church. And he was complaining about his job. And I was just being kind of lighthearted. And I just said, well, what are you complaining about? Goes, oh, my job, blah, blah, blah. I said, think about me. You're my job. He said, I never thought about that before. I said, oh, there you go. Um, and so, I mean, that sounds, it does sound silly. That was just a, a, a life changer. That's not what God's got. There's a million different things I could do in spiritually justified. I could, I've told Sharon this is kind of one of my John jokes. I could spiritually justify being a greeter at Walmart. Think of all the people I could see. 
I could see what's in people's buggies and know what to preach on. I could see when people come and go. I could introduce myself. I could put on a First Baptist shirt. Hey, I'm Pastor. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And God said, but I'm not calling you to do that. You could justify it. You could say it, I could the benefit of it. But is that what God is calling me to do? So we're tired. Pray specifically that God would show you what you need to be doing, not what you have to be doing. Fourth, this is why I want us to really look at some scripture. Why are so many Christians so complacent? Let me, let me reiterate something there. If I were to tell you, okay, here's a good example. We have, who's a, give me a teacher, close by teacher. Miss Beth, you're a teacher. Okay, 100% is passing, correct? If I were to tell you that, if I turn a test into you, and there are 100 questions, and there are one point apiece, and I get 26 right, what is my score? How's that look? What's passing in college? Sixty-ish. It used to be. It was fifty back in the day. So if I hand in something that is a twenty-six percent, what do I have to be excited about? Think about this. When we think about complacency, now we can do anything we want to with numbers. We can manipulate numbers in any way we want to. How many church members do we have? Let's just say 11 so we don't seem as bad. I think it is 1,200, but I've done my figures with 11. So 1,100 members. Based on attendance this morning, we had 26% of our church family in worship. On any given Sunday, we have 26% of our family in corporate worship what is the most important thing we do as the body of Christ even just you don't even have to be a, a, a sanctified believer to understand this Sunday morning church 26 percent what if I turned in a test of 100 and got an 18 on it that's I mean that's I mean, like an 18 on a test is about like getting beaten football by Missouri. That's just bad. That, I mean, but it is bad. I, I struck a nerve, didn't I, because it was bad. It's just bad. I am. I've been there. Hey, been there, done that. Thank you. That's our Sunday school percentage, 18%. I'm not, this isn't a gloom and doom. This is just the reality. 18% of our church family is involved with Sunday school every Sunday. 18%. What about the most strategic discipling ministry? What is our most strategic, right now, what is our most strategic discipling ministry at our church? Sunday night church. Now we're in single digits. Between 9 and 11 percent. Which people would, I could take a picture right now and go, 
and send it to all my buddies and say, man, what are you doing on Sunday night? Man, you're knocking the ball out of the park on Sunday night. Isn't that sad? Where we think of the landscape of our world today. Now, I'm not one of these that says we've got to be at church Sunday morning, Sunday night, get, you know, come home for lunch and we do prayer. I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying if the church says, I, I don't know if I've told you this statement. When I got to Bethel Baptist Church, I was just young enough that I didn't know any different. And I walked in that first deacon's meeting. This is what I said. We are only going to do as a church what is important to us, and whatever that is, we're all in. Amen. I said, all right, are we going to do Sunday morning church? Yeah, we're going to do Sunday morning church. All right, we're all in. All right, next. Well, are we going to do Sunday school? Yes, we are going to do Sunday school. Then we're all in. Are we going to do vacation Bible school at the church? Yes, we're, going, we're all in. How about Sunday night church? Yes, then we're all in. So guess what that meant? Everything we decided that we were going to do as a church, we did as a church. And we decided this is what we're going to do as a church because we feel like we need to do it and it is important. So you think about complacency in a typical church. I read a book by Andy Stanley. Now some of his theology has gotten kind of weird and I know his daddy is very disappointed in him. But Andy's the son and he said some weird things that I don't recommend reading a lot of his stuff. But he does come up with some stuff in leadership. And so I, I like to read different avenues of people. Do you know what he said that he does at their church in Atlanta? They target the person that comes to church 15 times a year. Let me, hear it. Let me say it again. They plan their ministries and their events and their preaching to reach people that come to church 15 times a year. That's where we've leveled the bar of, of expectation today. Andy Stanley's got campuses all over Atlanta and people flocking there by the hundreds and thousands, but they're only going once 15 times a year. There's an academic of complacency in our churches. <clears throat> I share those numbers because the fourth thing I want us to look at is ignorance. We're complacent because we're just ignorance. Now, sometimes I say things that get me in trouble. Sometimes people say things because they're just stupid. Sometimes people say things because they're just a flat-out heretic. I'll give you a good example. I remember sitting in a college class years and years ago, and we were talking about, are people good? Yes. And the professor said, why are people good? Because God is good. That made sense to me then. Is that right? Don't answer out loud if you don't know it. That's not right. So was I a heretic? No, I was just stupid. <laughs> so now I would raise my hand down and say, you know what? It sounded good, but it really wasn't good. But by saying everybody is good and that we aren't really that sinful, then we're saying basically Jesus died on a cross for not the totality of why he did it, for nothing. So I know that sound, it would be better. You know, it sounds better to be good. That was just stupid, ignorant, be a better word. Sharing, that make you feel better? Ignorant. <laughs> so if we think about ignorance, look at it this way, two, two ways. One, and I need to move very quickly. An individual will sit there and say, I never knew that. You'd be surprised that, you know, um, as a pastor, you teach on something and somebody would say, well, I never knew that. 
and I always think, well, I hate that. I, I don't, you know, I'll, and sometimes when I'm in a, in a situation where someone disagrees with me, I'll say, well, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't, I, don't, I don't really know what to tell you. I, I can't help but you didn't know that because it's the truth. And so sometimes as an individual, we're complacent. We just don't know. It's on us. We just, I don't know. Well, that's, that's still on you. And we don't read the Bible, we don't study, we don't pray, we don't seek the deeper things of the faith. The deeper things of the faith are not for super spiritual people. The deeper things of the faith are for all of us. And we, we should all be growing and, and, and challenged and serving and not be so complacent. And so I blame that on the church. Now think about this. One of, my, one of my goals is to, uh, I, I, I just had a quote I was going to say, and I can't remember it, um, one of those old pastor flashbacks about one of the, what the pastor does. Um, I don't know. One of the goals that I have is to challenge you. I don't want you to get complacent. I don't want you to get in a rut. You know what Walmart does every, every so often? They change their, their floor plan. Why is that? Doesn't that aggravate you? It's kind of like remodeling the church, isn't it? Ah! So what we're going to do is every six months, we're just apple turnover and basket Sunday school classes. We're just going to do it every six months. Isn't it fun? Keeps you on your toes. No, we're not, I promise. But part of what I want to do as a pastor is to challenge. It's, it, some, pastor, some people have said to, about me and other types of pastors like a me, it's like you're never satisfied. I'm going to say, no, I'm not. I'm never satisfied with where we need to be. And we should never really be satisfied of where we are. I think we ought to be excited. This is where I am today, but I should never be satisfied. Well, I made it because when do I make it? Gail, you told us. If I come in here one day and there's nobody in here, I'm like, well, we made it. I'll pray the, play the prelude by myself and sing by myself and we'll be fine. Y'all made it. Turn, if you will, to 2 Timothy 4, one of my favorite pastor books. I read it often, 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 often. 2 Timothy I guess one of the goals I would have, if you were my part of my church that I pastored for many years, you couldn't say, well, I'd never heard that before. I didn't know that. I don't, you're not going to be able to, here, here's another way of saying it. You're not going to be able to claim ignorance on my watch, I pray. That's why I preach through books of the Bible. That's why I preach through the epistles and the, the gospels. Now, I'm not as good on the Old Testament as I need to be. I'm working on that. Because I don't want somebody to say, no, you can't blame him on that. You, you, he, preached, he taught you that. He preached through that. He touched the tough stuff. He, he, he preached it. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. I charge you in the presence of Christ who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Every church is not the same. Please never tell me this. You might tell me, you might have told me but I promise I've forgotten. At least they're going somewhere. What does that even mean today? 
you know. Well, my, my family's going to a church. <laughs> At least they're going somewhere. Buddhist, Methodist, Baptist, Lutheran, Temple of Faith of God, Apostles, Spirit-filled church. What is that? At least they're going somewhere. No, they need to go to a, a evangelical, Bible-believing church where you're going to be fed the Word of God. My sister's going to two churches, neither one of them is Southern Baptist. Oh, my gosh. I, I brag on my sister a little bit. She was the one that we prayed would get saved, and she got saved. You know how one reason why I know she's saved? She goes to two churches on the same Sunday and ties at both of them. One church is a small, intimate church where the preacher goes verse by verse through the Bible. I love it. The church down the road is a bigger church, non-denominational. They have great small groups. I go to the early service, the late service. I feel guilty. I don't know what to do. God will figure it out when I get to heaven. It's God's money anyway. I'm gross tithing to both churches. My sister needs to move to Avon Park. <laughs> and I just have multiple churches, you know. Isn't that incredible? Wanting to sit up under somewhere where they're going to teach the word of God. Notice what it says here. It says, for the time is coming where people, uh, verse 2, preach the word, be ready in season. And I've read this to you a hundred times. It's one of my favorite sections of scripture. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. To reprove, so he's telling Timothy, this is what you need to do. So here's what drives John a lot. We are not going to be the best of my ability, we're dealing with complacency. We are not going to be a... When I stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, there's going to be a lot of things I might have to answer to, but pastoring, uh, letting a church get away with complacency, I do not want to be one of them. So I follow this model. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. To reprove is to tell the truth about sin to expose and point something out. Do you know that you can go to a church and never hear the word sin mentioned? Does Joel, would I want to hang around Joel Osteen? Probably not. Well, you might want to. Have you ever had somebody say to you, why do you pick on a Joel Osteen? I, don't, I shouldn't maybe pick on him. No, I should. He never talks about sin. He said on national television, it's not my job to tell people they're a sinner. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. If you, if you preach through books of the Bible, when you get to sin, you preach on it. When you preach on anything, you just get, you're, not, you're not hobby horse, you're not rifle preaching, you're shotgun preaching. You're hitting everybody. We need to point out sin in people's lives. We need to reprove as we teach. We need to rebuke at times, to criticize sharply. That's what the Word of God does. Have you ever, when you have a quiet time, when you, if you're reading the Bible promises for the day and they're all about joy and peace and harmony and love, I don't need that all the time. You know what I need? I need, I need the Word that's going to penetrate that old wicked heart of mine and show me what it means to be holy and righteous before God. And if I'm faithful to confess my sin, He cleanses me from all. I need that every day because this world has an effect on me, does it not? And so the Word does that. I want to sit under preaching. I, I, I still remember Pastor Ronnie Barnes. I need to find out where he's at now. He's older than me. And, you know, as you get older, I wonder where they are now. 
The church I came out of was a good church, but it was kind of a sweet preaching church. We'd read a passage of scripture, and then it would be the guidepost for living. You ever read guideposts? Isn't guidepost just the sweetest little thing you ever read? It was guidepost preaching. My grandmother loved guideposts. Oh. And the first sermon I went and heard Ronnie Barnes as their youth pastor, he preached, I heard more about hell in one 30-minute Wednesday night Bible study I'd heard my whole life. And I remember telling him, oh, my goodness, I hope I, I think I... I might need to go talk to Ronnie about getting saved. I had never heard so much about hell. He was a hot-hearted, evangelistic, verse-by-verse preaching, and he just let it out. every. I'm like, my goodness, that man can preach. And that's what, that's what the Word should do. That's what it is a church. We should make the comfortable feel uncomfortable on Sunday morning. There's a little phrase. Somebody help me out. There's a little phrase that talks about what preaching does. It makes the comfortable feel uncomfortable and the uncomfortable feel comfortable. You know, those that are at ease in Zion, that the Word of God ought to stir our heart to be excited about what we need doing for the Lord. So I need to reprove, tell, preach on sin and, and criticize sharply. But that word criticize sharply, it also means with urgency and authority. Like throwing a drowning man a life vest. You're, you're concerned. You're pointing out danger. You're not judging in the sense of just never being happy and judging. But you're pointing something out with a sense of urgency. You know, come today and accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Hell's a breath away. Urgency and you're criticizing and you're pointing out. But then last, to exhort. What does that word mean? To encourage, you know, come alongside. Brother, how you doing? I love you. You know, we're in this together. You know, as a Barnabas, I'm here for you just to, to prop you up. If you think about, you know, in, in, in a, if you're teaching the Bible, every element needs to have reproving, rebuking, and exhorting. You, you're not going to be complacent. You know, I like a, a John MacArthur is one of my favorite folks. One of, the, one of the reasons that he's so favorite to me is that for years he's always been ahead of the curve with technology. And so when it wasn't even really the end thing, John MacArthur's always made his stuff available. And I can remember being a, a younger pastor where you're always preaching and listening to, the John, listening to John MacArthur on his Sunday morning walk through book to the Bible and just going, oh, my goodness. I was like, man, I love John MacArthur. Why do you love John MacArthur? Because he tells the truth about sin. Because he criticizes sharply with a sense of urgency and authority. And then he comes alongside and he gently restores with the hope of Jesus Christ. That's just what good preaching should do. And so if you're sitting in our, uh, hopefully, and you're sitting in one of our services, if I'm doing what I need to do, and you are at ease in Zion and you're complacent, the Word of God will stir your heart. It will show you, you've gotten complacent. You know, fan the flame of the first love in your life. Next week we're going to look at zeal. This week is complacency. Two passages of Scripture will pray and close our service tonight. What are the dangers of complacency? Matthew 7, 24 and 27. 
I'll read it, you listen. Matthew 7, 24 and 27. If complacency is a thing, there's an object or a thing that we're being complacent toward. You could say the gospel, the word. You know, we, we sing the word, we preach the word, we should pray the word, we should live the word. Everything we do is about the word, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the word, the Holy Scripture, everything we do. So our complacency is toward the word. Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Everyone who hears these words of mine will be like a wise man. Who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came, the winds beat on the house. But it did not fall because the house was built on the rock. The house was built on the word. That person is built on the word, trusting in the word, believing in the word. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, be like the Pharisees standing in front of Jesus in John 8. Hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew. Same circumstances, same storm, same wind, but a different effect. It fell and great was the fall of it. Let me tell you what one of the dangers of complacency is. One, I would say your salvation, whether or not someone is even saved. But the impact of not walking faithfully for the Lord and that fall. This passage jumped out at me as I was thinking about complacency in the church. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2. 1 Corinthians is a great convicting read about how important it is as a church to be the church. Now listen to what's going on in the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2. It's Paul writing to the church. It is God's word. It's Paul writing to the church. It has actually been reported there is sexual immorality among you. And the kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. Notice verse 2 there. He says, are you arrogant? That, that struck me this week. Are you arrogant? Why that word arrogant there? Why, why do you think that the Lord uses that word arrogant right there? God, I know this is your house. Your pillar of buttress of truth. God, I know that we've gathered that the church, First Baptist Church of Corinth, Second Baptist Church of Corinth, or just Baptist Church in Corinth. We're complacent, and we don't care. We're going to let a, a sin be in our midst that even the pagans wouldn't have handled. And the Lord Jesus Christ says, are you arrogant? Now, who is that claim against? God. One of the sayings that I say a lot, very rarely do I get to this point. 
Every now and then I get to it. Sharon will tell you, it's not pretty when I get there, but I'll get there. I've done it with my children a few times. I think I did it to Sharon the first week we were married. I've never done it again. But you get to a point where you say, I've done it in football a few times in a good way. Have you lost your mind? I, I put the van, the good old Astro van, never forget this, in park going down the highway and had a dialogue with a four-year-old, a five-year-old, a six-year-old. I don't know how old she was. <laughs> Have you lost your mind? I am in charge here. I did that in a football game a couple years ago. Thankfully, Coach Jackson was there, our head coach, and he justified it. Have you lost your mind? Boy, take that helmet off and come sit on that sideline until the rapture takes place. I looked over at Coach Aubrey, he's mumbling. He's lost, that boy has lost his mind if he thinks I'm going to let him talk to me out there. You know what the Lord says? Have you lost your mind? That you think, Corinth, that I'm going to bless this? Ought you not rather mourn? And then it says, let him who has done this be removed from that. It's, it's not necessarily, if you look at, at 1 Corinthians 5, it's not necessarily a, a, a sermon about how to remove sexual sin from your church. But it's a problem of complacency in the church. Are we arrogant? I mean, have we lost our mind here or something? Not here, but have we lost our mind that God will, you know, so what is the danger of an individual becoming complacent? You're going to build your house on the sand. The decade of the 80s with me could be the decade of the sand for me. You know Christ, you grow in Christ, you love Christ, and then you get complacent. And it seems like everything you do has a season of success or blessing until the wind comes. Woo. My whole decade of the 80s was that. One thing after another, one thing after another, one thing after another. And that one night I remember laying in my bed looking up and said, Lord... Done. I'm just done. And the Lord says, good. How about building on the rock now? And build some things that are going to last in your life. I think churches can be that way. I got a, a, a good, I shared this with the men. Good, good friend, church I'm aware of, doesn't matter where. Noticed on the website, I knew they were in a building fund, and I was curious how they were doing because I've been praying for them, a smaller church in a building fund, real big challenge for them, and I noticed that I hadn't heard an update from them. I went to their website. Interim pastor report. I said, oh, if you have an interim pastor, then you don't have a pastor. You call up not trying to gossip. What's going on? Well, pastor was counseling a woman, was having marital problems. They had an affair. He started back drinking. 
I'm just going, what in the world? I'm not blaming the church, but I will say this. That's the second two of the last four pastors that has happened to. And at some point, you have to say, man, y'all need to have a something. Whether it's a cleansing, a purging, a something. There's some complacency going on in the church if these things just continue and continue and continue to rear its ugly head. Next Sunday night, I want us to look at the zeal of the Lord because that's how you fight complacency. Now, I don't want us to leave here all gloom and doom. Oh, only 11% love Jesus. That's only 9% come back to church. No, that, that, I don't buy into a norm or all that. I don't worry about all that. But here's why I like to share those things. You know, one of the greatest dangers that we can have is to get at ease in Zion. You know, it's okay. We're doing just fine. We're good. It's like a church leader told one of my friends, brother, we've been doing this for a long time, and we're going to keep doing it for a long time. And my friend said, he's young too. When you're younger, you're a little bolder. And you're going to keep having pastors every three or four years for a long time. The danger of churches is we've been doing this for a long time. We'll keep doing it for a long time. And you'll see, you'll see God bless and you'll see God do things. But in the end of the day, you'll say, when, and here's a challenge to us. When is the last time that we saw God do something so supernatural that only God could get the credit for? You know, it's like me, one of the things I'm guilty of. It's like, oh, I remember I went through a season of prayer in my life where I was so close to God. It was 42 years ago. I mean, when is the last time we can say as a church, man, God showed up in such a supernatural way that only God could get the credit for? Complacency is a sin that is wreaking havoc in our, you know, if you think about, we complain about the spiritual condition of our country, do we not? Oh, if we could just get back to the way it was. If we wouldn't have got that Democrat in office, we'd have been a Christian nation. If we wouldn't have elected, who, the, who in the world thought this guy was going to be a good idea? We'll never get back to where we were. That's complacency. Oh, if we could just, okay, let's say this. We're not ever, I don't want to get back to where we were. Where are we going? You know, what are we doing now to reach our community for Christ now? What are we doing to reach our neighborhood now? What are we doing to grow closer to Christ now? Not what we've used to do, not what the church is on. What are we doing now? We blame everything on everything else instead of saying we're just not complacent. We're not satisfied with just whatever, but we want to have a true zeal for the Lord. Think about that. Pray about that. Lord, when's the last time we saw God do something so supernatural in our midst, in my life, in my ministry that only God can get the credit for? Think about that. Let's stand and pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word, for the convicting power of it. Lord, stir our hearts to where we're not people that are complacent. 
that we are excited that the word will expose and expound and convict and point out and encourage. And Lord, as I even think about our church and so many of our church that are involved with teaching in schools and the, the goal of teachers to inspire those kids and encourage those kids, Lord, I pray that as we sit under the preaching of your word and the Holy Spirit convicts our heart that every time we gather in your house, we are asking you to just pour into us what we can be doing and pushing us and pushing us and pushing us to be more like you and less like us. We love you and we thank you for the gift of salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a wonderful week in the Lord.